0: Rachel Meadle from Talking With Tech.
1: And I'm Chris Bougay from Talking With Tech.
0: We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs.
1: If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities.
0: And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults Anything related
1: to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly/slash TWT podcast.
2: Please join our
0: community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say,
3: however they want to say it.
2: Please listen carefully.
3: What is communication?
2: An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster enough. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other.
3: Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people, connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. It draws us out of ourselves. Draws us into that relationship. You know, builds up our families without any loss. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants. Frustrations and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information.
1: Welcome to Speech Science, episode 96. We are proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm Matt Hot, joined, as always, the mouth in the South, Michelle Wintering.
0: <laughs> that was an interesting introduction. Hi, Matt.
1: <laughs> and the guy out in, uh, I almost said Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, <laughs> Michael McLeod, who was the WWE Mouth of the South?
2: Uh, Jimmy Hart.
1: Jimmy Hart. I was just watching a documentary on that today, Michelle. So I wanted to rework Mouth of the South. I can't say
0: I am a WWE fan.
1: Oh. And then joining me, as always, in my home studio, my three-year-old Andrew, if you hear him in the background. We want to hear from you, however. Head on over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. From there, you can give us a phone call, 614-681-1798. You can also email us, podcast at gmail.com, or find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash speechsciencepodcast. Michelle, this is part two this week, right?
0: Oh, yeah, of the interview. I hope you guys enjoyed part one.
1: (laughs) What is part two? So part one was like the evaluations. What is part two?
0: Uh, Part two, we get a little more just general questions about teletherapy and what an actual session looks like.
1: Ooh, that'll be fun. Also, coming up on this episode, we are going to talk about talking dogs, how you can build a larynx out of your own stem cells, and the gift that keeps on giving, PDPM and mechanical soft foods. But I thought we'd start off something close to home, at least for me, uh, a study out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Linking screen-based media and structural differences in young children. I know we've talked on the show previously about the decrease in executive functioning skills, increases in ADHD, decrease in language skills. This is a little terrifying.
2: Yeah, this is a this is definitely a legitimate study. this This came out of the uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, of course there's been tons of articles floating around this topic or, or on the internet now for years and years, really since, you know, iPhones and iPads really yeah. took off. Uh, but this is a legitimate study and, uh, it involved 47 healthy children, 27 girls, 20 boys between the ages of three and five. Uh, and they were given your, your basic standard cognitive testing. Um, and, and the results were, were pretty obvious. So, uh. A lot of the scores, uh, they tracked language, they tracked executive functioning, and this, uh, that from the MRIs, they really saw some significant structural differences.
1: Now, is this kind of, so when I read this, I was thinking immediately, like what I talk with patients that have strokes, about how your brain develops and sometimes one person, two people could have a stroke in the same area, and it kind of affects them a little bit differently because of the environmental uh, events that they happened as they were developing and the way that they learned, is that kind of the same idea except negative because of the screen? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. So, so the frontal lobe of the brain really develops at its own pace. Uh, really what you see with ADHD, executive dysfunction, pretty much the same, the same thing, uh, topics use the same. Uh, you know, uh, I work with several other, uh, and collaborate with several other professionals who specialize in ADHD. And really, what a lot of them say is ADHD uh, is really a terrible name for the disorder. Really, what it should be called is frontal lobe developmental delay. Uh, so, mm. so ADHD is just a basic delay of the development of the frontal lobe. And this screen mm. time, this screen time, this ability to control actions with with your uh, with your finger and have this intense uh, control over your media and how you interact with it. And these uh, these constant, constant hours of having the ability making it portable, uh, it's really uh, slowing down that development of the frontal lobe.
1: I think I've learned more in the last five minutes, Mike, about brain development than I did all the way through neuroscience.
0: Don't tell your professors.
1: <laughs> That's what I do, man. Sorry, Dr. Hsu. Oh, I love Dr. Shu.
0: <laughs> Dr. McLeod.
1: You know, I mean this this terrifies Dr. me and I Michelle. Regret. I don't mean to I don't mean to to step over you, but like I made a post on Facebook today and this has been my big thing with both my boys. I'd rather spend two, three, five hundred dollars on toys, like action figures and cars and Legos than thirty bucks on an app just just because this stuff is terrifying as a parent, let alone as a therapist.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and um, it's something that I know I've talked to more and more parents our age, especially and for me having my first child in the last year, um, that it's something when I was looking at childcare, we also had to take into account, uh, especially when you have babysitters or in home childcare options or anything else of, you know, are, how, how much are they turning on the TV? Are they giving them an iPad or are, are, what kind of screen time are they getting in that childcare setting?
1: It's terrifying.
0: Um, I did like the AAP recommendations just to kind of review though. I think that's always good to know. I like that they bulleted it out in this article of saying, you know, younger than 18 months, avoid that use. Other than they said video chatting, I'm assuming they don't want them on a video chat all day, but, um, and then 18 to 24 months introduce high. If you are going to introduce digital media, watch it with them. So they understand what they're watching. Uh, and then two to five, limit it to one hour per day of high-quality programs and co-view as well, and then um, designate media-free times together. Do you guys do any media-free times? Just with my husband and I, we do. We'll put. Yeah, that's phones. what I mean. Yeah.
1: And then, Michael, do you have any media-free time at your house?
2: Or uh, your I, home? No, I do not.
1: Yeah, I'm with Michael. I don't, and I really wish we did. I don't have kids, so.
0: Well, well no, but I've seen it. are it. I mean, for sure. But I've story. seen it
1: though. Like even couples, they say it's good couple therapy to have
2: media-free zones or. Mm-hmm. Media or people free times. who
0: they don't even keep the phones in the bedroom.
2: It's not put, their alarm clock. You know. That's impressive. That's very impressive.
1: Yeah, I. I yeah, I can't do that. I check Facebook right before I fall asleep. <laughs> we want to hear from you head over to our website speech email speech science podcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call 614-681 oh i just dropped that 1798 i couldn't <laughs> remember the phone number guys that's um, all, that, also, all
2: that facebook time man
1: i know my brain has been changed we our gotta hashtag... keep up with
0: our our social media listeners though
1: hashtag sspod speaking of that I was gonna say a shout out to Susan Dugan. Uh, she sent an email in. She's a speech pathologist in El Cerrito, California, and she was linking back to the Lyra ABA episode we did a couple weeks ago. Uh, was asking, I guess in the interview, I talked about data tracking, and my favorite app for data tracking is either the Super Duper Data Tracker or IEP Pal. Do you guys do any data tracking digitally?
0: I do not. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, sometimes I'll use like uh like a Google doc or something like that. So it can be easily shared with the parents. Okay. Uh, yeah, nothing, uh, nothing too extensive. Uh, I'm not, you know, the biggest, uh, data guy in the world, but, uh, but yeah, uh, sometimes, sometimes like a shareable doc with the, with the parents. That's fair. Yep.
1: Next article coming out of the ASHA leader. It's the gift that keeps on giving. PDPM, always in the news, always close to our heart. And this time, what they're saying is evidently, you get more funding if your patient has a modified diet. Oh,
0: lovely. It's so, one of the many things you get more funding <laughs> for. Well, if you check and I get it it. off when they come in at admission.
1: <laughs> well, and I get it. They say that modified diets mean that there's more resources and more time and more education involved with it. So they should get, get higher funding. Totally understand. My concern is what happens if the patient declines the modified diet and then the, the facility knows that they would get more money with that. Is there, I I, I would worry about any ethical grandpa's going to get puree, even though he won steak
0: yeah i, I <laughs> i'm feel also like the pessimist so of the many, show so no but there are so many worries and what ifs when it comes to this that's why like you said it's the gift that keeps on giving
1: mike do you do you i forget do you do anything with with diets at all or no
2: no i do not not at so all. you
1: are going to sit this one out aren't you Yep, pretty much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just like when we had our guest on
1: too. Oh, Julie. She's she went out, by the way, Julie salute to Julie. She ooh, went ooh. out to Washington DC mm-hmm. and got FaceTime with her congressperson to talk about PDPM. So There you go. That starting at the cool. local
3: level
0: and moving on up. Go Julie. Right. I like like
1: she flew from Seattle to Washington D C just to do this like fifteen minute FaceTime thing. And that is more dedication than I've ever had. And I feel bad not doing that myself.
0: That's fantastic. Shout out to her. (laughs)
1: Um, However, this, right, shout out. The uh, ASHA leader article says, what do I do if my sniff requires me to put patients on a mechanically altered diet? And of course, that's an ethical violation. So you need to report them. But if it's reporting like anything in the school system, there may be repercussions for your position
0: are they meaning report it within obviously you start within your mm-hmm. facility and your department but outside of that if you're reporting to asha that gets complicated too
1: asha uh or medicare because um, that would be i would think a false billing it would be fraud <laughs> fraud fraud is the word i was like oh my gosh guys i'm having so many aphasia moments during this all right um but yeah, ah, man, PDPM. I just went through training for PDGM, which is patient driven group models for home healthcare, and the training. I mean, it feels like it's very. What is the group? Why? Why group? I have no idea. I think what it is is it's like grouping of therapies, grouping of of like comor mortal morbidities. Comorbidities, yeah. Yeah. So, like they were talking about how um the PDGM was talking about how if in my writing I can't really say that I'm working on dysphagia. And I and I may be getting this wrong, so don't quote me on this. But like I have to talk about why whatever started the dysphagia is what I'm working on. So I'm not really targeting dysphagia, that's a symptom of the muscle weakness caused by Parkinson's.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: I get it. I mean, to a point, but at the same time, it's, I feel like this is going to change in three years and it's not going to matter what I wrote. <laughs> I don't know. All right. We want to hear from you. We're Head so over to our website. so positive tonight, Matt. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, like, I don't mean it doesn't matter what I wrote, but I mean, like, in three years, I feel like they're going to change the model again and it's going to be a whole new set of rules and laws that I have to sit through uh, changing home health care rules. We could hope, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Coming up after the break, Michelle, what's coming up after the break? It's your therapy setting on telehealth?
0: <laughs> um, yes. Teletherapy? I, I, yes, you're right. The second segment of my interview uh, with a woman, from Kristen Martinez, from Presence Learning. You can find more at PresenceLearning.com. But in the second segment, we talk more about an actual therapy session uh, done via computer teletherapy awesome
1: we want to hear from you tell us your opinions 614-681-1798 the show is driven by you and your thoughts speech science podcast at gmail.com or hashtag sspod talk to michelle and michael all the time you're listening to speech science
0: do you have an idea for a product or book or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started, and what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea
3: with the world so that you can help more people. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned
2: herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org/caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
0: And uh, for those listening last week, you heard from Kristen Martinez on teletherapy. She works for Presence Learning, and she is the, an SLP herself and also the head of clinical standards and outreach. And this week, we're diving a little bit more into the teletherapy conversation, which I've talked to more and more therapists who are looking at doing this either private practice or picking up a few patients' teletherapy in addition to their full-time jobs, and Kristen started that way, uh, but now is a full-time employee with um, Presence Learning, and if you can kind of give us a little intro here for this week, uh, what are the biggest advantages, and what would be the disadvantages of your teletherapy experience? Sure. Thanks,
3: Michelle. Um, So, Uh, Yeah, we can look at this different ways, Um, advantages for the therapist, for the students. I think clearly for on the therapist side, there's a lot of advantages around some flexibility, um, being able to work from home or from a private office setting, uh, being able to have more control over your schedule. Um, Even though we work with the schools, You know, one of one of the first things that really hit me when I stepped away from working in a school district, um, which again was it was a great job and I have a great district, but I don't think I realized until I stepped away and was doing teletherapy, where it was really just purely providing therapy, doing evaluations, writing reports, talking to parents, talking to teachers. Um, I was not doing bus duty and commuting between sites and going to math curriculum trainings that really (laughs) have used me and all those things that we get pulled into as school-based SLPs. All those
0: little extras that add up. All
3: the little extras because it's all hands on deck. We want to help. Um, So yes, and I, it was really, it was exciting for me to feel that I suddenly had more time um, to really focus on being a speech language pathologist. So that was a huge advantage for me um, in terms of one of the reasons I certainly stayed in the teletherapy setting was i felt I felt stronger as a clinician because i it really did challenge me to sometimes think about my therapy approaches and what I was doing because I wasn't physically there. um so I, I really think that it sharpened my skill set as a therapist, and um, you know disadvantages from. the the therapist side some people do find that it's not a good fit for them because they really do miss being mostly around like physically in proximity to their colleagues Um, they miss being in the teacher's lounge and having lunch with people and it's usually that's usually what I hear is it's more of a social um, interactive piece that some people just miss going home and being online We, you know, we have a community of 700 plus SLPs in our network, close to a thousand across all disciplines. And so we really encourage providers connecting with each other. Um, We have a social media kind of platform where they can ask questions and give responses and give ideas. And we try to do, you know, meetups when we're at conferences and, and things like that. So I actually found, um, I felt more connected to other SLPs. I think just because when I was, when I was on site, you know, you're the only SLP usually in four buildings or however many you serve. So I didn't have that daily, oh, I just need to ask this question um, and talk to somebody about this where in an online community, it's more immediate. There can be actually more of that throughout the day. You can kind of check in and ask questions. So I think for people who take advantage of that and take the initiative and use the resources, they actually can find a community, but not for, not for everyone. So for some people, they just decide it's not, it's not the best fit for them. Um, On the student side, in terms of advantages, I think there can be a lot. Um, Some students obviously just really respond to technology that's not I think people see that when they're doing therapy in person if they have their ipad they have some kids just that's what they want to do so that can be that can be a, a something that gets kids more engaged in therapy um, some students also I think especially some of the older students going into middle school high school who are still receiving services some have told us that they feel more comfortable I think there's a bit less of a stigma going to work on the computer versus being having the SLP come and sit next to them in class or being pulled out in you know into another room so there you know we we have heard that as well but sometimes students just prefer they really like the computer um you know disadvantages on the student side you know there can be students where regardless of the supports put in place um they they don't respond to the computer i mean i certainly think we can think of of our some some of our students for instance um who might be on the autism spectrum who it's interesting because we have some of those some some students that we work with on the spectrum love the computer it's they're more comfortable with that than having like that 3d person Mm. (laughs) um they do they do great others um do they might struggle with that they might um not attend or you know they may really fight that so You know, and that's something that every therapist has to determine individually, working with students. Um, So, but, you know, it can be a disadvantage. Usually those types of situations can be overcome through a combination of adjusting the approach with the students, the activities you're using, um, leveraging or using the on-site support person more or less, to give reinforcers or whatever the case may be so um yeah but there's that you know I think there's certainly pros and cons but overall the the primary advantage is that we're we're getting services to students who aren't getting them Mm -hmm. um and it's services from certified qualified experienced therapists um as as opposed to you know unfortunately what we have seen because there has been a product shortage for going on over a decade now of uh, school-based speech-language pathologists is some states have responded, they've dealt with it by actually making regulatory changes in terms of who is permitted to provide direct therapy to students. So in, in some states, they will have personnel who are not necessarily trained um, providing those direct IEP minutes, um, sometimes with with varying degrees of supervision. So, you know, for me, it's for our, for our field and for our students, the ability to bring somebody who has a decade of experience in the schools via teletherapy to those students um, is a way of of really maintaining the standards in our field and also the care for students. And
0: all the therapists who are employed through presence learning are SLPs. You're not utilizing SLPAs. I know I've worked in a couple of states that do, or do you also right. use SLPAs?
3: Um, we do not at this point. Um, we, you know, we, there's a lot of, we're, we're guided by ASHA and AOTA and NASP guidelines and best practices, but then there's also, that's you know, national differ, deference of to the school, psychos- right? uh, school psychologist. Okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and then American Association of, or uh, occupational therapy association. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, but they also defer then to state regulations. So it's always this balance between the two of looking at our national governing bodies, but also the states where we're providing services. So um, that can vary a great deal in terms of what's allowed in general. Some states don't have SLPAs at all, mm-hmm. Um and then some do, but, but you may not be able to supervise them via teletherapy. Sometimes you can. So we are doing, we do some supervision in some states. We do some supervision of SLPAs, supervision of um, CODAs, um, Certified Occupational Therapy Assistants. Oh, um, so the
0: supervising SLP is the teletherapist. Mm-hmm,
3: is virtual, yes. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. That's been that's a good solution for some states that really helps them because there's SLPAs are probably more available um, than licensed SLPs in some areas, and so being able to do a combination um, will usually take some of the direct therapy caseload, but maybe also do some supervision. Um, some states, however, it's not possible because it's still in the regulations that in order to supervise, you must do a, uh, an in-person face-to-face visit once a month. Mm-hmm. So that essentially um, cancels out the ability to do that via teletherapy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when you mentioned the community of SLPs through you know social media with presence mm-hmm. learning, it also made me think, do your SLPs um, tend to have multiple students from the same, same school or the same classrooms? Are they able to make those connections with either the aides or the mm-hmm. teachers there?
3: Yes. So as much as possible, we always try to. We you know we really want to have a very similar experience for us, the therapists and for the schools as if they were there in person. So this, what typically happens is the school district will give us a caseload of students. So it might be you know an entire building. It might be part of a build part of a caseload in a building, um, and then we take. The students, what they need in terms of frequency of services, their scheduling, their schedule availability, um, and then make the best match with the licensed therapists that we have. So we try as much as possible to have you know one SLP working in one building with that caseload, and that's their caseload throughout the year. Um, Sometimes, however, we may have to have two or three SLPs assigned in a building, depending on how large the caseload is. Mm Um because they're independent contractors, our therapists are often part-time. So we don't always have somebody who happens to have the right license who also can take on 60 students. Mm-hmm. Um, but they might be able to take 30. And so, you know, from then of course the next step is we we don't want to divide students between two different therapists. So we'll make sure at least this caseload stays with this SLP, this caseload with this SLP, and then they do case management and evaluations and attend IEP meetings and everything associated with um, being assigned to that student.
0: Gotcha, yeah. Um, All right, so I know I kind of sidetracked us there for a minute, but uh, (laughs) I'll bring us back here to the treatment part. Uh, If you can, teach me what that looks like. I know right now I'm looking at you through a screen, but (laughs) if if we were doing speech therapy,
3: Mm-hmm.
0: How, how? What do you do was it? that like? Yeah. what yeah. is it like?
3: So again, and I mentioned this in our the last time we chatted was it's important to have the best you know good internet speeds that can support a clear you know you don't want to have freezing audio freezing video um, you want to have a good headset with a mic so you have really clear audio um, good good video good lighting so that you can see your student really well they can see you. So those are the basics, um, you know, a quiet space as much as possible, which sometimes means, you know, in the back of a resource room with a visual divider between the computer and the rest of the kids. So that's pretty common. Um, as we know, as on-site SLPs, there's not always a, a beautiful separate. I, I was going to gonna say that's probably
0: <laughs> similar to on-site, yeah. right?
3: It is. So you you, you do what you can. Um, but in terms of the actual therapy session. So again, my familiarity, my experiences with presence learning, and we have our own platform. so which I'm, i''ve I've been pretty spoiled because we have a library of tens of thousands of activities that have been shared by other therapists. Um, anything anything that can be scanned, anything that can be put in PDF form can be uploaded and used for therapy. So, for instance, when I first started presence learning, i used to I used to love using a lot of picture books. So I a lot, used a lot of literary-based therapy with my elementary kids, so I scanned and uploaded probably a dozen picture books that I use all the time. Like Stone Soup was one that I loved. Um, that's, and that's you know, we one. have the uh, it is a good one. Yeah. So we have the option of keeping it private. So you know, that doesn't have to be shared. If you have any concerns about that, um, and then the book just pulls up in our therapy room, and I can turn the pages. And but then we also have all the whiteboard tools, so the kids can circle things and stamp and highlight and be really interactive, even if it's a static activity. So again, for us, our platform has those kinds of tools um, like stamps and rewards, like little kind of cartoon things that go across the screen. We're able to integrate video. Um, so there's some great great videos on social skills and phonemic awareness, and so there's a lot of great stuff that can be integrated. Um, so other therapists platform. are
0: kind of in, in that platform, able to build their therapy repertoire.
3: It really is. So you can build your own. And then within, you know, there's our library that's open to everybody. And then within this individual therapy rooms, they can create these cues. And so you can organize all the materials any way you'd like. So, yeah. you know, I had all, I had all my assessment materials in one queue and all my initial R activities in one queue. So that's, you know, that's the functionality. Um pretty flexible. There's um but so so but there's other there's other platforms. There's certainly other platforms. Um, you know, even like we're we're using Zoom right now, um, you know, I could screen share. So I could pull up um an activity, a document, and in you know, a Word document or a PDF I had copied, I could screen share that with you. Um, and so You know, different, depending on the platform that's being used, there's different functionality, different um, capacity to be interactive. So that can vary, but in general, it's, you know, of course we are always, I mean, our therapy is guided by IEP goals and evidence-based practice. And so that's it's still, it's still the same. And that's something that surprised me when I first started is how similar therapy felt. Um, I really was very nervous about that piece, um, how I was going to address goal areas, um, but you know, I, I, I really did, it just wasn't, wasn't as challenging as I thought it was going to be, making that, making that leap to teletherapy. Um, now, I also, I tell, I'll tell our therapists, um, if we're talking, if they have questions about working, especially with much younger students, or you know students who might have more severe needs you know we have we have tremendous tools there's amazing things available in the platform online but not to be afraid that doesn't mean you can't use materials think objects that are there physically with them so especially when you're working with preschoolers it's likely developmentally developmentally appropriate for them to be holding a book to be holding on to a favored toy or activity To elicit language, to get them talking. So you can integrate that with maybe something you're pulling up on the screen or a video, but don't feel like you're limited, like you can't let them use those materials. So, um, you know, and when we're working with students who, for instance, are nonverbal, have an AC device, clearly that is a student who does need that very high level of support on site. So, most likely, their, the paraprofessional who works with them all week, week long is part of the therapy session but then we also do things like uh, we will send a second camera if we are working with students you know if we know we have students who have an ac device in addition to the built-in camera or the camera that's on the computer itself so we can always see the student's face we can have a second camera that's trained on the ac device so we can also see, have a feed of how the student is inter- interacting with that device, the interface. Um, so that that's an important piece too, is making sure you have the appropriate equipment in place, depending on the students you're working with.
0: I, I like that idea of having the, so the therapist then would have a dual screen to right. Yeah, have a that, second
3: video feed. Yeah. Of what the
0: student is seeing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's great. And I, I'm guessing, is that more common for OTs as well? If
3: it is, yeah. So OTs and also our school psychologists um, who are giving, you know, especially if they're giving the Woodcock Johnson, because there's there's written portions and they need to watch some of that. So um, OTs and the other, we, sometimes we will send. It's it's better to have a wide angle camera, um, particularly for OT services because they will do some of the gross motor activities, kids standing up from the computer, but also if we're working in a preschool and we want to be able to watch and interact with students who are on the carpet and they're they're playing and they're down on the ground um so again it's it's really you know being creative about the with the technology so that we're supporting the students where they where they're at developmentally um, and not always you know not that we're trying to you know make everything look exactly the same in terms of teletherapy because of course it's individualized and we that's still that doesn't that's no less true as a teletherapist than when you're there in person.
0: You made me think with uh, I almost lost my train of thought sorry the the idea of treating that patient or when the Ot has is doing some of that gross motor activity. Um, mm-hmm. Does teletherapy ever provide an opportunity for co-treatment? Are you able to do that on that platform?
3: Yeah, yeah, actually my um so one of my colleague, Rachel Morris, she's an OT. Um, she and I actually have recently done some presentations on co-treatment uh, via teletherapy. So, um, absolutely, we we have seen models of, you know, where both the SLP and OT are both teletherapists, and they're co-treating that way, or one is on site. And so, um, it's you know, again, it really is about that communication and collaboration, um, and planning. So I think you know, again, that's really no different than when you're trying to co-treat in person is you have to also schedule that time to plan together um, to make sure that you have, you know, you've kind of talked through what the activities are going to be, what you're trying to target, um, but absolutely, that certainly can still be um, a viable model using teletherapy.
0: I've really enjoyed, and the the job I've been right now, I'm able to do more co-treats than in my previous mm-hmm. employment, and for given a particular obviously individual case but for specific families or specific kids it it can be really beneficial.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've learned
0: from her and I hope I hope she's learned from me too.
3: Well yeah absolutely I mean there's so much there's so much crossover and um, you know Rachel in in, in our presentation she she talks about um, a a case where it just happened to be I think because there was a schedule change <clears throat> or something happened where um there was a student who was you know typically would come to speech sessions pretty low low energy pretty difficult to elicit much language um well it happened one day that Rachel who was the treating OT did the OT session first and so there was physical movements um you know lots of stimulating stimu- stimu- stimulating um you know, physical activity, and and then she went straight into speech, which didn't usually happen. And she was so much more productive in the speech session that came right after OT. So that was the connection. They it was kind of they realized, oh, this is really beneficial for this. She needed that
0: arousal she needed, the that
3: arousal. she needed that arousal. She needed that. Yeah, she needed the stimulation prior to the speech session, and then she was able to, you know, be much produce much more, be much more successful in that speech session. So, you know, that.
0: The we we do. It, treatment. it does,
3: I, exactly, yep.
0: So often a complaint I'll hear from school SLPs is when they um, aren't able to do as much individual therapy as they would like. Is mm-hmm. teletherapy typically one-on-one, or is it done in groups with the schools?
3: Um, so since we are working in schools, there's still there's still times, of course, when it's clinically indicated to have a group, mm-hmm. um, and also just because of the sheer number of students often that you're trying to see. Um, we. Like I said, I can, only, I can only speak for what we do at Presence Learning. We really cap our group sizes at three. So it's a combination of individual groups of two, groups of three. Um, that's what works best in our platform. So I think depending on what therapists have become accustomed to when they're on site, um, some people, their settings, they might be coming from charter schools or more, you know, where it really is mostly one-on-one. They just don't have big groups. Others are coming to us and they're like, oh my gosh, I have, sometimes I have groups of up to six kids. Um, And so for us, that's a big reduction for them to to never have groups that size. Um, The only exception to that is certainly if if we're coming into a school and there's already an established uh, like social skills group, for instance, um, sometimes that makes sense. And that will look probably different than, you know, typically the students will have their own computers, they'll have their own video feeds, everyone's logging in. You can even have students logging in from different buildings in a district, but still coming into a group session, um, which I've done a couple times before in districts where, um, for instance, you know, there's just small schools, not a lot of kids receiving certain types of services. So I've done, I, you know, have done that across buildings before to create a social skills group. Um, I did it before to create a fluency group. Because there just wasn't anybody else in the building. I had, there was one student who was working um, who had fluency related goals. And I really wanted, first of all, for him to understand that there was somebody else who was dealing with that and who also um, was challenged, um, but also for them to practice together and practice, practice fluency enhancing devices and things like that. So, um, so I, yeah, I don't, it's not that the move to teletherapy suddenly you just have all one on one sessions. Um, but I will say that I think it naturally there is some reduction in you know, just the the back to back large groups and really just the numbers that are overwhelming.
0: And you and you pointed out a, a huge advantage of pulling groups mm-hmm. of I think social media nowadays and our social groups on Facebook and everything have connected. Um, I know when I was working in Colorado, I was at the School for the Deaf and the Blind and I had Parents with very unique children with their diagnoses, but they'd connected with Mm -hmm. ten other people in the world who had diagnoses. But I love your example of the connecting your fluency students or connecting the similar Mm -hmm. diagnosis to realize, hey, I'm not alone in this. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, Anything else specific to the treatment session that you want to share with us?
3: Um. Well, so I, you know, in terms of a lot of times. A lot of the questions I get are around behavior, how do you manage really, really wiggly students all the way to students who are non-compliant or, you know, whatever. There's a big range that can happen in there. And again, it really is degrees to which we need that on-site support. So I, I tend to tell schools and therapists that if you think of the level of support a child would need to participate in a general education setting, that's probably pretty close to the level of support they'll need to participate in teletherapy. Um, So if you have a kiddo who you know that every five minutes or so, you're going to have, somebody's gonna have to stop by their desk and kind of, you know, do some calming, do some redirecting, um, they might also need that during a teletherapy session. So you might need to have somebody you know, you can, and this is something you can work with the paraprofessional, the speech aid on a reinforcement schedule. So what does that look like? Now, some kids respond really well to every five minutes, we're going to stop, and you get a quick minute video break, like their favorite cartoon character or something like can come up on the screen. And that's enough to keep them, you know, that's engaged. Other, other kids, other students, they might actually need, you know, a goldfish cracker, um, something physically there. That's what's reinforcing to them. Um, they might need a brain break. They might need to get up every 10 minutes, stand up, touch their toes, do jumping jacks. And so that, you know, that's something that I think our therapists, just as if you're there on site, you figure that out. Maybe you think, okay, this is this is a tolerance, this is how far we can go before we need a break, we need a reinforcer. Um, so it's really just deciding what's the best reinforcer, what's going to keep the student engaged, is it something I can just do here on the computer? um or do i need to engage my my support person to help me with that
0: and the behavior management also um i was curious what is there any diagnoses that you absolutely cannot treat over teletherapy just given the platform
3: mm-hmm. so the only actual diagnosis area goal area that i say no before we even meet the child is dysphagia, swallowing and feeding. I mean, for obvious reasons, safety, unless there's somebody trained on site, we can support, um, but not, you know, we, that's just, that's an area that the school really, they don't want to, us to do that, because there needs to be somebody physically present. Other than that, really, no. Um, and that's one of the advantages we have of having, been, we've done this for a while now, and we've had the opportunity to Work with students of all ages, early intervention, all the way through transition age. Um, and I think because, you know, sometimes, like I mentioned, we are in districts where there's on site SLP. So the district might decide, you know, we're going to go ahead and use the teletherapist with the speech only students, and our on site SLPs are going to work in the mod severe classroom. Um, sometimes it's flips, sometimes they put teletherapy. <laughs> they put us with the, the kiddos who are in the mod severe program. Um, and and then again other times we're in districts where there's there's not an on-site FLT. So we really do problem solve. We work with the schools. You're gonna um, get every, to address,
0: every kiddo, yep.
3: You're gonna get everyone. Um and it's interesting because they're they're they're, they're starting to go away, but there used to be more regulations around teletherapy um, and I Texas comes to mind because this is one that I that I personally dealt with where there what there used to be regulations that before a child could be seen by a teletherapist could engage in teletherapy the the first regulation was the treating teletherapist so the person who's going to be doing teletherapy had to first do an in-person assessment of the child's appropriateness for television. <laughs> so so it was a bit of a challenge because these districts didn't have an on-site slp <laughs> so um so we actually at one point were flying in some slps to do the on-site assessment um but really what it always comes back to that you know asha outlines there are criteria to consider um you know means child communication their cognitive abilities their physical sensory needs and this level of support. However, it's always, there's always an assessment by doing the therapy. So there's just not a student where you say, I'm not even going to try. Like, I just know based on that diagnosis, it's not going to work. Um, You know, it really, to me, that's a form of predetermination and something that we're not supposed to be doing. Um, So I think with any treatment approach, any service delivery, it's, really should be, ethically and appropriately, um, a matter of meeting with the students, seeing how they respond, and then adjusting um, your approach. So not to say that there aren't situations where, given all of that, you know, given work with the schools, that we do have students who they're just not engaging. Um, So that can happen, and that's also the SLP's Ethical obligation to talk to the school about that, talk to parents, and um, let them know what's happening if they feel that progress is not being made um, or if the student's not engaging. But I, you know, that can happen when we're there in person as well. Um, we can we can hit a wall. We can try everything, try new techniques, and the student is just, just not responding, not not making progress. And so um, I really I really challenge SLPs to think about. Is this a challenge you might have anyway, even if you were there in person? And um, you know, how 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 would you approach it? What how, what, what would you do differently? Um, and so I think I think it's a similar level of flexibility and um, adaptability on the SLP's part to really think about how best to meet the needs of kids via teletherapy.
0: i I'm learning so much just listening. To I feel <laughs> like I'm making notes here, trying to add in my my thoughts as we go so I can ask you this time and and for our final part um is there anything I'm missing about treatment specifically before we kind of wrap up this segment
3: I don't think so I mean I can I can go on for a long time because I love I love talking about it but I think that's that's you know a lot of the basics I think for people who are interested in just getting started or you know what it looks like in in pretty general terms
0: Mm -hmm. those frequently asked questions I know
2: yes yeah um,
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And again, this is Chris, Kristen Martinez out of Denver area. Well, sorry, Fort Collins. Yeah, I just said Denver. Fine. Out of Colorado. <laughs> um, and she works for Presence Learning. You can find more at presencelearning.com. And next week, you will hear from her again for the last segment of our interview about discharge, about um, people who, if you want to do teletherapy, kind of where you can find more information and um a little bit more about growing that business if that's something
3: you're interested in all right thank you all right. thanks michelle
1: welcome back to speech science my theme is Mad hot i forgot where i was for a second hanging out with michelle wintering and michael mcleod what's up guys hi Matt. what's up <laughs> guys i michelle i loved the article. i love i am <laughs> sober by the way just so everyone knows I love the article that you just sent in the chat. I w- I was trying to say article and Michelle at the same time. Uh, evidently, what we're the number six best job in America.
0: It's well, I had to share it with you guys, and I'm glad you mentioned it because um, my husband just shared it with me, and it says 15 high paying jobs where you can work less than 40 hours a week. I'm sorry, where are they getting this data from? But apparently, we're number six. Uh, that I mean, is
2: insane. I'm, That's
0: insane. I,
1: I, I make enough to you know, survive and pay the bills, but I'm working sixty to sixty five hours a week.
0: I don't know if they're averaging like all SLPs who don't work full time necessarily.
1: They have to be. I think
2: there is so much wrong information out there about speech. Like I remember doing so much research when I was taking the prereq classes and getting ready for grad. There is in terms of like business insider and career rankings. There is so much crap out there. This is like (laughs) 37.1 hours per week. Are you kidding me?
0: It even says number seven. It says college professors work an average of 37.2
1: hours per week, which. I believe that. I mean, if you've ever tried to find office hours of a college professor, I believe they've worked 37 hours a week. (laughs) you just just <laughs> it <racking> on
0: professors. <laughs> I
1: love professors. Some of my best friends are professors. I will say that. Hey, this next article is coming out of the Mayo Clinic. Uh, new strategies could make lary- laryngectomies a thing of the past. Uh, I love the idea of advances in tech and the idea that we can build a larynx uh, using stem cells or the body's own, you know, construction set so that it doesn't reject it. I love this stuff. Yeah, this is... It,
2: it, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. It's just incredible. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. This is like medicine just blows my mind. Like even just like I was thinking the other day when we talk so much about like vaccinations, like how do they even create vaccinations? How do they even figure out how to do that? And this is 50 times more amazing. This is unbelievable. Being able to create a, a larynx and put it in and make it functional. This is this is insane. Medicine is Medicine is unbelievable.
1: Uh, it's one of more than 40 clinical trials at Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative uh, Medicine. It's a regenerative technique, is when they're starting to grow organs. You know, guys, I mean, how much longer until we look at something where uh, a person that loses their hearing will be able to have the whole hearing system regrown using their own cells or, mm-hmm. you know, the voice box that we're talking about now or is it too complicated to even guess maybe repair parts of the brain using stem cells following stroke or dementia?
0: And the stems person's stems own stem cells were harvested from their fat tissue. What? Hey, this I've just got plenty of stem mind. cells. It's incredible.
1: Uh, I, I love this kind of stuff. And, and you know, it, it's, I don't know, guys, it, it's kind of a cool thing to be part of, uh, or not part of, but see happen. um, mm-hmm. And it opens up the possibilities for our, for our patients. I mean, 10 years ago, telling a patient that maybe we could get them a digital hearing through a cochlear implant with just a single side loss seemed absurd. And now we're doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and now it- we can use 3D printing and stem cells.
0: And So Dr. Lott is the doctor and his team at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and then it says that the United Network for Organ Sharing, the transplantation regulating organization, has given them the green light for him and his team to perform to perform two of these per year for the next five years. So if it all wow. goes well, the they hope that a larynx transplant will become as rude, routine as any other transplant, such as heart, liver, or kidney, which is crazy that we're saying that's routine, but... That's incredible.
1: I don't want to change subjects, but like, did you guys watch on Facebook? I shared it through the speech science page about the brain surgery and and the the OT student just talking her way through the whole surgery.
0: Oh you're talking about I watched, how I only watched about five minutes of it, but when she woke up and they were working on her brain on the other side of the blue tarp and she's communicating.
1: Yeah, I that didn't
0: was realize cool. she was an OT student. That's pretty cool, too.
1: Yeah, so she was working uh, in a clinic when she lost all control of her ability to speak. Wow. Yeah, And then, so what they did was um, they needed to go in and remove some of the tangles, um, the lesion spot around Broca's and Wernicke's. And what they did was, as they were asking her questions, they were electrocuting, or not electrocuting, shocking, part of her brain and if she couldn't answer or get it wrong they knew that was a language center of her brain and they didn't want to do surgery on that part of the brain
0: hmm, so they were wow. mapping where yes. her specific language centers or you know regions were
1: right wow. uh, we want to hear from you did you watch that on our facebook page did you see it in general or do you have an opinion on regenerative techniques head over to our website speechsciencepodcast.com Give us a phone call, 614-681-1798. Email podcast at gmail.com or hashtag SSPod on Twitter or Instagram. What's going on on our Instagram pages here these guys, here these days, you guys?
0: Well, one of them you'll touch on on our last article today. So, Anything
2: back. else? Um, I mean, I, we, we need I, to yeah. post
0: some more. We need some more interaction over there. <laughs>
2: I think I'm gonna need the password sent to me again. I, I gotta I, I need to log I need to log back in. <laughs> hey, also we
1: do have the Discord. The link is below in the show notes and also on the Facebook page. Our last story, it's a fun one. It's also the reason why I do not like Big Mac buttons or switches by themselves. An 18 month old dog is learning to speak. They know 29 words and can already form sentences because it can jump on the right. Or the correct switch to make a sound. Oh, so
0: I love that you sent this, Matt, because just today I had two people send this story (laughs) to me as well. And I added this uh, speech pathologist on Instagram. I've got a connector with the speech science Instagram page, but it looks like she is an SLP and they're working with their two dogs. One dog uses it more consistently (laughs) and they have a whole setup of a bunch of kind of big Mac switches you can see pictures and video on their social media um hunger for words i think that was it mm-hmm. and what
1: look park happy
0: yeah it's it's fascinating because it looks like they're pairing you know the meaning with selecting different words and the dog starting to pair buttons together too
2: yeah this is probably my favorite article we've done so far in the history <laughs> That's of the so podcast cool. This is really unbelievable. And, and she writes really detailed comments under the videos, and she talks about how they have like side conversations about who's going to go outside with the dog, and the dog's able to push the right button for the appropriate person they're talking about. It's really amazing. This is really some incredible insight. This, I, I think this Instagram page is going get to a, get a lot of uh, popularity very, very soon. And now that you guys
1: have established you loved it, let me tell you why I do not like Big Mac buttons in general. Is that you, okay? You
0: like the dog using the buttons. I love the you dog don't like using Big it.
1: Mac Here's the problem I have with Big Mac buttons or switches. Go is for that it. they are – like I went to a training that kind of – this was six years ago, five, six years ago. And I feel like we use Big Mac buttons way incorrectly in therapy that we will – uh, record an answer right before like we ask the question. So if we're reading something as a group and we might say, what what was the color of the tree? And then we record and say green. And then we give it to the student and say, hit the button because they're not really participating. Does that make sense?
0: So I, yeah. I get what you're saying. You're saying that there's not a, a like true communicative intent with it,
1: right? Yeah, they're just hitting the button because we literally just answered the question for them. Or what upsets me more is where you see one of our kids that is nonverbal and their only, particip- like their only thing is, hey, the, the teacher pushes the button in front of them and they push it and it says, turn the page. And then they take away everything from the kid again until it's time to turn the page again. Does that mm. make sense? Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: I've when I've used it before, honestly, the Big Mac, it's been more for – participation mm-hmm. with a limitedly verbal or um, nonverbal kiddo in a young classroom where or like a class performance or something that that way they can use that to quickly voice in an activity that requires it so that they can participate with their peers. Right. now that's like a one choice thing right and I think that's the big part is adding to it like we can't just stop with a big mac button we need to then provide okay if they're making choices it's definitely not a choice if you only give them one button um but then i think matt you and i were chatting about this briefly Mm -hmm. a woman that um uh, a friend of mine she used to run a group home for adults with various diagnoses and disabilities just as a, a caretaker for them right and she said in their training and i don't have more details on it but they were always taught um, from a language side, this is interesting that it's not a real choice for those adults. If you don't give them three choices, which was interesting to me. Um, that's,
1: that's interesting. I wonder why it's three and not two.
0: Yeah. And so my thought was, um, one strategy I had learned was, okay, yeah, we'll give them two choices. So we know they can differentiate choices, right? Like Mm -hmm. make a choice. The third one that I like to add is, um, a question mark or different so that you've made it open-ended now like oh, i don't want either sense. of those two things other other different different other other you know they can keep cycling through it and continuously tell you that you're not giving them the right choices
2: i like michael that.
1: do you use big mac switches or, or or big Mac big mac buttons
2: um i have I, i've used them with uh things like cp and different things like that and uh i i definitely agree with a lot of what you said earlier. Uh, in, in terms of efficacy and functionality, uh, there's definitely a lot to be desired in not having the appropriate amount of options and choices for the communicator. Um, it's definitely something that you can trial and, and test out for someone who, who would re- require something like that. But uh, you always want to, uh, of course, uh, advance to a different AAC system.
1: One of the trainings that I went to, they gave out like a list of like a hundred ways to use Big Mac buttons. And I really wish I still had a copy of that. But a lot of it was like you do a step-by-step, which is the the switch or the button that does like three or four different phrases. Mm-hmm. And you put that at the door and you record, you know, three, four or five people saying goodbye different ways. So then as kids hit the button, it's giving them an intent that they're saying goodbye or, you know, I like you put, the
0: variety of ways. Though. Right.
1: And then you do the same thing for someone that's going to the bathroom. Um, so that way, you know, you've got someone says, I need to use the restroom. Somebody else says, I got pee." you know, another button. The time you hit it, it says I have to go potty. Like it varies that language. And then that's how they talked about how we should use those buttons in general. Uh, you know, leave it permanently attached to the mixer so then that way when they go to use it it says i'm mixing our whatever huh right that's why i say i don't like big macs because once you like think about oh we could make this a permanent location it, it feels weird to just record it and slide it in front of the kit
0: yeah i like that well I, that's just the the lesson that we have to keep pushing mm-hmm. ourselves we don't stop with just one you know, one thing that they've grasped and learned, you've got to keep building on it and expanding on it.
1: Speaking of expanding on it, this episode is almost over. So let's expand on what we're doing this week. Michael McLeod, the proud representative of the number six best job in America. What are you doing (laughs) this week in Philadelphia?
2: Well, uh, within the, uh, 37 hours that I'll work this week, uh, 37 and a half. 37 and a half. Sorry. Sorry. I <laughs> forgot about that. I take a very short lunch. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I pretty much have a lot of, uh, lots of evals, lots of school observations coming up. Um, sometimes I like to mix it up between doing evals in my clinic and doing evals within the home. So I like to do a, a nice uh, a nice mix there. So I'll be doing some of that later on in the week. Uh, lots of parent phone calls, lots of reaching out to parents to see what they're seeing at home. Uh, that's always really key uh, with a lot of the work that I do. Uh, you know, seeing the speech and language, executive functioning, life skills, how they vary based on environment, reaching out to teachers. So I'll be spending a lot of time on the phone, unfortunately, uh, in the next couple of days. Michelle?
0: You know, just, just the norm here. Seeing patients, doing evals, doing re doing treatments. Um, Hanging out with Baby Speech Science, looking forward to a long weekend, and yeah, there you go. How
1: about you, Matt? Um, When this airs next week, I will be driving to Florida for ASHA, so I got to get this promotion out there real quick. Uh, Join us for the free live podcast event at Asha thursday november 21st at the hyatt hotel it's connected to the convention center it'll run from 7 30 to 8 30 uh it's going to be emceed by our own well-known slp app developer eric raj also michelle wintering you will be doing a live hosting event
0: i like how uh, some, you say that as though i don't know you will know. be
1: doing <laughs> you'll be doing surprise uh some well-known featured guests include uh lori binko she's from lesson picks carrie david join hope speaks uh providing speech therapy for children in uganda and i believe that's who you're talking to right michelle
0: um hope speaks
1: yes and then jenny no uh, i don't
0: think so that's not wait yeah that's you okay
1: yeah and then (laughs) jenny bjorm uh the apraxia expert and speech sound cues uh for more information head over to the exceptional ed facebook event page that is coming up guys asha is in a week i'm excited all right for michelle wintering and michael mcleod i'm mad hot in the immortal words of janice wright always be a willow uh the oak seems strong but it will crack under pressure our intro music is please listen carefully by jazar it's licensed under an attribution and share alike license our bump music is the county fair rock er, county fair rock copyright of John Deku at soundcloud.com slash dirt dog music is where you'll find all of his other tunes and our closing music playing underneath me right now The Slow Burn by Kevin MacLeod it's licensed under a Creative Common Attribution license until next week so long everybody bye bye
3: This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.